At some point in the day, Bach is going to be good for you. Here, here. Let's get our daily dose of Bach. on my graduate recital was much more dangerous and I was foolish and I had a technical problem but I was using my laptop's onboard microphone and I was uh-huh. standing probably I'd say th- three feet or less from a, high, a train that was barreling through town and was not observing any kind of slow down through this heart of the town uh, procedure and I believe, based on listening to the recording, that he was, the driver was hitting the train whistle, the horn, much louder than normal, much longer than normal, because he saw me standing so close to the tracks. But the recording I got was pretty, pretty great. Cool. And the picture I used for, I used it for the um, posters and things that I put up around campus. And that train was actually going excruciatingly slow, slowly through town. Uh, uh-huh. It just was like, get here already. It was just <laughs> snail's pace. So I wish that I had pictures from the other one, but I think it was, it might even been nighttime, which made it even worse. Uh-huh. But, you know. Wow. Trains. What an iconic 20th century totem. I mean, it just like evokes all this stuff. It does, and I think living in a town like Flagstaff and going to grad school and trying to figure things out musically, um, Flagstaff's very, the train is very much a part of town, and I I think anyone that's lived there, especially in the summer when the town is much quieter and there's not air conditioning is widely found in other towns. You have your windows open at night, and the train's coming through I never timed it. I never really wrote down and kept track of when it was, but it felt like every 45 minutes didn't matter matter what time of day it was. There was always a train coming through town and the trains at night, especially were they just felt like, I think I lived two or three miles from where the train from the center of town. And it just felt like the train was coming through the doors. Like it was just going to destroy the house. Uh-huh. Uh, and really impacted me for my stay there. And additionally, not only, you know, as you said, that they're part of our culture and part of our, part of the expansion West and just everything that they've had to, the role that they've played in every way. I've always been, um, drawn to the rhythmic quality to the sound of a train that you get this you get these beats and you get these patterns and you get these sounds that are incredibly musical mm-hmm. and it, to me anyway. And at the time, oh, yeah. at the time I was very interested in the order of sound, ordering of sound, ordering of numbers within sounds and mm. the, basically the serialism of sound and of composing. And I took the, I recorded that train and I took it and used it in the first half of a piece as ambient sound, as it's just everybody knows this sound, everybody's aware of this sound, everybody, this is a part of everybody's life. You know, pull up to a train crossing and you get the arm coming down and you get the bell at a, a certain BPM and uh, the train comes through. And if you're listening, which not everybody is probably, you get the sound of the train wheels going across the tracks and if there's any imperfections in the tracks you get a bump sound or you get going across a brake sound and uh all of that yeah and and, and like and like this the squeal of, of the wheels on on the tracks i guess that happens when it's like going slowly and going around a curve yes uh, uh a friend of mine she lives off of nolensville and i can hear it and it's like it's just like whenever we talk on the phone, I hear it's like, yeah, I know exactly where you are. Yes. Uh, all of that, all of those sounds. The second time I brought the train into the piece, 
I did my best to edit the sound of the recording of the train to the rhythm or the metronome marking of the piece. So whereas the first time it's just part of the sound, it's just an ambient texture that ends up basically dominating the sound. Um, the second time it comes in, it's, it is rhythmically accurate. So mm. every, you know, when the arm, the crossing bell is happening, is uh, sounding and the arm is coming down, it's part of the texture in a rhythmical sense as well as an ambient sense. And it's not really, I don't know that it's immediately obvious, even listening to it and knowing that, knowing as I do that it is rhythmically accurate. Mm-hmm. But it changes how it interacts with the sound because basically everything's just repeated in the second section uh, for the most part. Uh, but when you get the when you get the crossing bell, the you get the train crossing arm lifting at the end of the piece. The piano I used I was into very into early Adams minimalism pulse pattern repeated mm-hmm. rhythmical pattern music. Uh, it's the crossing bell is with is accurate rhythmically accurate with the piano so the piano is just playing eighth notes eighth note chord repeated for minutes at a time and the the crossing arm bell whatever it is yeah train crossing that's with the piano so um, it was kind of my I think I even for a minute was calling it uh either homage or collage to Flagstaff. Um, mm. But it ended up not being, I changed, I think I changed the title. I think maybe observation, I just called it observations because it was basically each instrument was a character that of a type of person or a specifically of a person that I knew in Flagstaff. Um, and the, the main melody line is a clarinetist, a clarinet, B flat clarinet. And that clarinet line was written for the person who ended up playing it. Mm. And it was kind of like a, I don't know, very kind of a not nice thing that I did <laughs> in some ways. Because the, the piece, the, the little melody line was written for a type of person who goes on and on and on and likes to hear the sound of their voice. Mm-hmm. And if you listen to them over a course of a number of weeks or months, you come to understand that they're saying the same thing every time that they open their mouth. Uh-huh. But no one's really paying attention because they slightly change it or they change it just enough that it deflects that it's basically the same rhetoric. It's the same uh, language used. It's just – it's all the same and you just – say have a new thought for once is my cynical – <laughs> mental okay and so what i did what i did with the melody in that piece was it's the same melody exactly 100 percent the same melody four times through the piece twice in each section and i moved the p i moved the melody rhythmically so it starts on a different beat and i moved its pitch center so it starts at a different pitch center so that i hope it's it transformed it just enough to sound not like the same material. But if you're listening to it after a number of bars, you're like, Oh, I've heard this before. I've heard this. Uh. This has already been played. And then, but it's not, I, my aim was that it's not done in a way that it is like getting boring. It's changed just enough. And everything else has changed just enough to, to shift it just enough that only if you're listening to that line, do you think, Oh yeah, that that's, I've heard that that was already played, but it's different. What's different about it? Well, it, it sounds like uh, what Bach used to do. What it sounds like what fugues are. It sounds kind of like like all of. I mean, we all say the same things all the time, you know. And if Bach fugue, you'll you'll uh, and, unless you're Shakespeare. If you're Shakespeare, you'll you know he must have been a a heck of a conversationalist or, or, uh, or James Joyce or somebody like that. But, you know, Bach, you just have like a tune and then the tune comes 
a fifth away and then it comes back at the original key or maybe it's like slightly changed if it's, you know, depending on what kind of fugue it is. I'm not being very coherent. You know, for some reason, you sound really present in my phones and I don't hear myself at all in my phones. But as long as you're hearing me, I guess that's okay, right? It is, and I do hear you sound you sound really good. Are you using the microphone or are you using... The microphone is plugged in, but it doesn't... Uh, I get closer to it and I don't hear any more of me in it than I do when I'm far away from it. So I, I have my suspicions whether it's actually... Well, I can't know because I don't hear me. I think, I I think that it is. Okay. Because I hear you scraping on it and I hear... Okay. You, I, when you get closer to it, your voice sounded more present. Okay. So I will just uh I'll I'll go on faith. <laughs> Excellent. I can't I lost my thought, but it's okay. I wouldn't make the comparison myself, but I think that fugues have that quality that you're hearing many of the same ideas in different entered in different ways, uh arranged in different ways. And I think unless you're really paying attention and listening critically, you're not going to hear that that's a fifth away or that enters oh, a sixth for sure. away or that's in the retrograde or that's inverted. You have to be looking at the score and you have to be analyzing in that kind of way or have enough experience to know what the retrograde of a, of a melody sounds like after a first or second or third listen, which I think if you're listening in that way, maybe you're not listening in the way that I would hesitate to say what rushes to mind first is the way Bach intended. But I think you're not listening in the way that allow you to hear what he's saying clearly. Yeah. That's such an, an interesting thing. I mean, how people intended for us to hear this because, you know, it, Bach, you know, most of his stuff wasn't meant for public performance. You know, they would be played in churches probably once, you know, the, like the solo pieces were these kind of meditative exercises that, you know, I guess his, he would play or teach to his students, but they, they, they weren't, they were neither performed in, in a big hall, like we would dress up and go to, nor were they like meant to be played over and over and over again, like we would with electronic media. So it's, it's, it's a, it's just an interesting thing to contemplate, you know, how did Bach's different audiences hear it? And how do our different audiences hear it? And and one thing I love about Bach is that it's so flexible. You can do you can play it on any different instrument, you can play it faster or slower, and it will still be effective and it'll still be moving. And and like uh Mm, earlier it's earlier for you and I, yet i'm having a hard time stringing sentences together <laughs> so you know i i often as as i'm playing something I'll, I'll wonder you know am i playing this too fast for my audience i mean there's really so much going on here mm-hmm. you know can they really soak it all in i mean could i soak it all in if i were listening am i intended to soak it all in or is am i supposed to be kind of like you know a dog in a car with its head sticking out the window and you're soaking it all in, but in a completely not intellectual way. I think that it's interesting that you mentioned the speed at which you play Bach. I don't have recollection enough to, to say for, with certainty, but I do think that there's something to, I mean, take a sati. I, when I sit down at, at a piano, I play sati, sati's uh, hymnopedi number three. That's just the first thing that I start playing. Mm-hmm. And if I play that incredibly slow, we're talking 30 or 40 beats per minute. Mm-hmm. It's not as, it doesn't, I love that piece probably as much as I love any piece in the world, except Messian Osaka and Convivium. That's <laughs> no, nothing approaches that ever, but I love that hymnopedia and I love the melody and I love the, the movement in the harmony and the, the left hand. But if I play that really slow, it's not going to reach. It's not going to mean as much. It's just notes. It just ends up kind of disintegrating into notes that you're playing without kind of lacking a coherence or lacking a a pointed message. If you play it closer to tempo or at tempo or slightly 
faster than the tempo Sati called for, it's still there. If you go too quickly, the melody was designed or, or exists in a state that needs a certain amount of time between each note. And if you shorten or, or lengthen that time to extremes, you lose the quality that the melody possesses, mm-hmm. that the piece possesses, where I don't think that that exists with Bach. I think that it is, as you said, much more flexible and can do m- many more things. I love that about Bach. I think that I don't want to get into or, or attempt to get into what he was aiming for, what he was looking for, what he was trying to communicate. But what I receive, despite tempo markings or, or interpretations, what I receive is tremendously profound in nearly every experience. And that's, I think, unique to him. And I think, for me, I, one of the things in thinking about him over these many days that we have been wanting to and haven't been discussing is how was someone like Bach not appreciated from the moment he wrote and how did he slip into the cracks of history and not really have the place that he deserves so that he rightly deserves until someone like Mendelssohn digs him up and trumpets him and performs him and leads that charge. That's endlessly fascinating to me that what was, what happened that he just fell off the, I don't know, off the pedestal or was never on the pedestal to begin with to be considered a great when he undoubtedly is, he has to be absolutely has to be considered one of the greats. And well, according to the New York times poll, yes, he won the contest for the, he was number one of the 10 best composers. Uh, and this is a reader generated thing that was mm-hmm. really delightful. There were, you know, hundreds, probably no, thousands of people writing in, you know, with their ideas. And at the end of the day, I mean, I think it was Tomasini that did the choosing, but yeah, I mean, just in terms of, of packing an emotional wallop, craftsmanship, resiliency. I mean, like even when Bach wasn't, well, Bach wasn't a popular composer in his day. And then after he died, he, I mean, he did disappear from the public's view, but composers that needed to know about Bach found their way to him. You know, we know exactly when Mozart discovered Bach. Uh, we know that Beethoven knew the well-tempered clavier. And it, it seems that each age can kind of find in Bach what they love and what they need to find in Bach. The the romantics would, would find this kind of this incredible drama. The the classicists would just find this absolutely beautiful craftsmanship. You know, I, I, each age seems to be able to just hone in on what Bach possesses because he just possesses so much. I think that to add to that, modern era composers would find a foundation um, similar to a classical era of basis and harmony and rhythm and crafting music, crafting one's compositions in a artful and incredibly intelligent way. Not that the other, no, no, not that that wasn't occurring in other eras, but that that's what I feel when I read or hear of modern era composers that love Bach. What they did was what I feel is extrapolated from that knowledge is are those things are the stability, the rock solid foundation and immovable weight of that base. I don't know. Yeah. Grounded base. Maybe it came from that idea, that emphasis in the music, but it's very permanent. It's permanence. Sure. Feels like it. Sure. Feels like it. So one of the thoughts I had, I think I may have said this to you before in conversation that I grew up in a house full of music. My dad is a musician, wonderful flautist. Um, He was, he doesn't play flute anymore. And he never, ever, ever played classical music, but he was playing music in the house nearly every night. I mean, he either had a record he was playing or he was playing his flute, or he was playing his guitar, or he was playing his trumpet, or he was playing his cornet. 
every single night it felt in my mind he was playing music so there was just music all the time and then I started playing cello in fourth grade and my sister started playing violin and then other sister played violin fifth in line he played cello for a little bit and then my youngest brother played bass for a little bit um so there's just there just it felt like there was always music but it was never ever ever classical and ironically enough sadly enough the reason that I started playing cello in fourth grade was to escape my elementary music teacher she was just <laughs> the worst type of teacher the kind of teacher that affects kids in incredibly the wrong way in my case she both affected me in the worst way possible um, and the best way possible because she was so terrible that she drove me from her class and I was looking for any and every escape and I found that in orchestra um, string class. I don't know where the enjoyment came from. I, I got into this class to get out of another class. Um, it, as little flexibility has existed in Texas, North Central Texas public school education, this was an out that I had. And I don't know where my love for classical music came from. And as I've been thinking about this and thinking about Bach, and the first thing that comes to mind even as a cellist Brandenburg concertos jump to my mind before the unaccompanied suites and in particular the third Brandenburg concerto yeah of course as a strings player and I think that that might be where it started that that piece the excitement the energy um, the elation uh, the drive the repetition Mm -hmm. There's something about it that there are two things that occurred. The first thing that occurred was just the just the thrill of playing those pieces. But I think the second thing for me that caused it to kind of connect with my psyche or my spirit or my heart or my head, uh, my mind was that or all of it was that it's very it just makes sense, and so. My method as a performer in playing an ensemble, I think even from a young age, from the beginning, was to memorize the music as quickly as possible and then stop watching the page mm -hmm. and start watching my ensemble mates mm -hmm. and try to like have that engagement and have that communication and have that experience or look at my conductor in the face and not look at their baton and not be, not be kind of... Uh, shackled to the fear and the questions that come from, well, what if I'm not in the right spot? I know I'm in the right spot because I see in their face and they communicate with me. And that's what I always tried to do. That's what I feel like I strove for. And in the Brandenburg Concerto as a strings player, so as, a, as the baseline of strings player, it was very easy to memorize. It was, it just made sense. And I don't know if it was, and forgive the kind of triteness of this. I don't know if it was just the, the one, four, five, one or the, the not lacking, you know, you're not changing key. You're not using chromaticism. You're not, you know, there's no subdominant. There's nothing. Um, not that it's not complex, but there's nothing unexpected, I guess. And if there is, if there are unexpected, I don't, that's not, that's kind of belittling. It, there's something to that music that was just so easy to memorize and that it, it feels it, organic and maybe that's what it was that there's an organic quality to it that made it so easy to absorb and then to express and not be overly concerned with the page like if I listen to those pieces now I don't know what notes I'm playing but I can still play the piece, if I sit down at a cello, I can still play the part. And that's, mm -hmm. I mean, I was, I don't know, that's like 25 you know, years ago. And yeah. I'm still there only based on rehearsing. And I, from what I remember, very little practicing. Uh -huh. uh, not very little, but just no, no, practicing than rehearsing because it's not really a challenging part. The only challenge is when the conductor takes it really quick and brisk. But anyway, it just, I think that's where it started for me. And I think, uh, additionally, there's n 
that brings me so much happiness to think if there is a an impetus or a beginning or a spark that was where my love for classical music began. It was that. Mm-hmm. It's just, it, it's just tremendous. I'm, I'm going to do something that I've, I've heard when you're doing improv, which is what we're doing. You should not do it. I, I, okay. I'm not going to contradict you. I'm going to throw a different idea. Okay. And I'm going to say that there's something in Bach that spoke to something that already existed in your neural circuitry. Yes. That, that, that just like, and, and, and which isn't to say that it appeals to everybody or that, that, you know, we all have our things that, that we find appealing. A, a friend of mine is a new grandmother and she, uh, we went out to lunch and she showed me a video of her beautiful grandbaby and her grandbaby, you know, uh, how old she must be, maybe four months old, maybe maybe a little older, you know, certainly about a half a year, not much more than that. And her baby adores Uptown Funk. I mean, that is her song. She can't sing it. She can, you know, but she showed me this video of the baby, you know, kind of looking fussy and dyspeptic or whatever. And then they played Uptown Funk and you can like see the kid just utterly transform and like start smiling and kind of moving its head around. It's like, this is such a cool thing that we do something that is so powerful that, you know, it's pre-verbal, you know, it's, yeah. uh, It it exists before the baby has the ability to form words. Yeah. And, and, and it's, and I'm not, am I comparing Bach to, to Bruno Mars? I don't know. But I mean, I think there's pro- there's got to be something in Bach that speaks to people at at a pre-verbal, non-verbal level. I remember the first time uh, I heard the Saint Matthew Passion, and I was I was I must have been nine or eight, and most of it was boring because most of it was in German, and most of it was recitatives, and most of it was a story that even if I knew the story, it probably would have been boring at that point in my life. But then I heard the Erbarmadish and. I just had this massive, well, the technical term for it now is aesthetic rapture, but it was like goosebumps. And it's like, wow. I mean, I didn't even know what to say. Wow. It's just like, what is going on in my body that I'm listening to this music? And it just sounds so unbelievable. What did you say the technical term is? Aesthetic rapture. Aesthetic rapture. I like that. Isn't that cool? Yeah. And uh, so, you know, how is it that he wrote this over 200 years ago, and I don't speak the language, and I hardly, you know, I didn't know enough about music to, you know, I knew kind of what an orchestra was. I'd heard music since I was young, but I didn't know anything. And then I am sitting in this public place and listening to this piece uh, about, and this woman singing about God having mercy on her, which I didn't know because I didn't speak German. And it's like, wow, what is going on in my body? So that's a that's a miraculous thing that there is somebody that could and and not only is it amazing that he could write something like that but that it could be I'm sure it was a fine performance but let's just say roughly translated you know we can't know what box music sounded like in you know with box instruments you right, know right uh and, and you know hearing Bach after you hear, you know, a train going by after you're, you're stuck in traffic, after you're hearing music all day long, constantly. You know, it's a very different experience than it was. It must have been for, you know, box parishioners to go to church after their difficult labors of the week and then hear this utterly transporting music. Transporting, uh, another word that, and I, I don't like to... Go ahead. I don't like to always use this word, but it it transcends. There's a transcendental quality to the music. Yeah. One of the things that I I kept coming back to and listening, and the the, uh, Mass in B minor, I listened to that a number of times. There's nothing. I didn't find anything in that piece that I was humming or I was singing or I was any concrete realization after listening. But I know that I, I... had a point in time where the worries of the world and the worries of my life and the worries of my kids and my wife and all of the concerns of the day, I listen to that piece and there's a break from it. It, Mm -hmm. All of that stuff, 
stopped to be stopped ceased to be part of my thought process. I listened and then I started back, you know, I left that excursion or returned from that excursion and I came back to okay, what do I need to clean or what do I need to pick up or what do I need to do? And I felt different. Mm-hmm. I, I experienced a um, a transformation in my in my um, person, and I think that's fascinating to me that musically he can do that uh, so frequently, so mm-hmm. cons- so consistently. Uh, I think there's a reason why composer various composers will play uh, chorales. I can't remember his name. I always forget the guy's name. In in undergrad, I played in the wind ensemble, and there was a a, a composer who played every morning. He played, um, he ran through chorales, and that's how he started his morning. That's how he put himself in the right frame of mind. Well, I know Pablo Casals said he would wake up every morning and he would play Bach on the piano, and. It, it, I didn't quite get why he did that. I mean, because, you know, there's like ways, a thousand different, a million. There are as many different ways to approach music as there are musicians and as there are times in the day, because it's always going to be slightly different. But if, if you're looking at Bach and you're going to get out your metronome and make it all nipped and tucked and clipped and primped, you know, that's not what he was doing. You know, he was, well, I, I wasn't there. But when I play Bach first thing in the morning, I'll do a prelude and fugue and just allow myself to kind of play it and listen to what's coming out. And if if something is different than I expected in my performance, then I'll figure out, okay, what can I do right now to balance this so that this still ends up sounding like music? So because of of the way it's written, you can play it faster or slower and you don't have to necessarily play with a steady pulse. I mean, you don't, Oh, this is another thing, but yes, I'll stop. You don't necessarily have to play with a steady pulse. And so it gives you the aesthetic flexibility to kind of like relate to it as this, as this alive and squishy thing that we need to make sound good right now, or we're compelled to make sound good right now. Uh, whereas if you're playing something that has, you know, if you have, you're playing something that has a propulsive steady thing, you know, you really do kind of need to play in tempo and you, you really, you're, you're, you're bound the more, no, I don't want to say it that way. When music is more rhythmically propulsive, you have, you're, you're bound by it. I mean, and not to say that all Bach is, is the same. You know, your your Brandenburg that you played, you know, yes, it's rhythmically propulsive and it's delightful that way. But the Bach I choose to wake my brain up with isn't necessarily. And it's, oh, yeah. I was just going to say that. I think that is speaks to the flexibility. Yeah. That it's not one way or the other way all the time. And I think that's everybody, but in the context of this conversation, maybe overreaching, but Bach can be all things to all people just depending on when he is that thing to people at a, per, at a point in their life, at what point in their life. Or in their day. Exactly. In the simple, um, less grand, in uh, at some point in the day, Bach is going to be good for you. Here, here. Let's get our daily dose of Bach. Did you do any like prepping for this, this conversation? Just over the last... Many days and weeks and months that we've been talking about having this, just <laughs> thinking about what is it about Bach that is impactful. Mm-hmm. If, if you ask me, uh, if you ask me who's your favorite composer, I immediately say Messiaen. And if you say the next question is why is he your favorite composer, I can go on and on and on. There's many, many, many reasons why. I connect with him, why I identify with him, why I love his music. Um, Technically, musically, um, spiritually, everything. It just, I connect with him in so many, many, many ways. I don't have those reasons for Bach, but I love, I deeply, deeply love Bach. And I don't have, I don't have uh, a myriad of works that are 
my most favorite pieces. And if I'm sitting thinking or needing some music, I don't reach for Bach. I don't um, run to his music. But almost in that, coming back to that idea of, or, or that comment that I made about modern composers, how I feel, how I identify with, they are impacted by or were impact, impacted by Bach. He is the foundation, and this kind of gets to what I was saying earlier. He is the foundation of my, upon which my love for classical music was was and is built, is continuing to be built. It it just exists in that immovable, incredibly supportive way that a foundation supports a house. But you don't go and look at the craftsmanship of the concrete for that foundation. You just know that it was great because there are no problems and it and it serves its purpose. Now, that's kind of the metaphor kind of slips away um a bit because it's not like I don't ever look at it or appreciate it um and and enjoy my love for Bach, but I don't I don't think of St. Matthew Passion and say that's my favorite choral work ever. I don't say um, B minor mass is the best mass I've ever listened to and I can't get enough of it. Or I don't say that this particular cantata or this particular chorale are just amazing. I just love all of it. And I love mm. it. I love it all at a depth that I don't, you know, you know, I think there's a way it's kind of like, um, this is kind of slipping off into a tangent for a second. I don't sit around and uh, talk about or think about in kind of descriptive or poetic terms how I love my wife. I love my wife in a way that I can't express because I think the depth of that love reaches a level where words can't cover it. And it's not to me, not to say that I shouldn't attempt to because that's part of what language and communicating is about, but it it exists in a way that I don't need to spend time um, expressing or or labeling or describing. It just is there. And I think that's the best, uh-huh. best analogy I can draw to how I feel about Bach. Other composers I can talk about, I can analyze, I can attempt to wax poetic. I can do a number of things to communicate why that or how that love exists for that music and for their crap, for their art. Bach, I don't, I don't find myself wanting to say, Oh, this brought this emotion to me. I just want to be quiet mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and, and experience it and absorb it and enjoy it. And it's not about, the intellectual, I guess, maybe that's what I'm going for. Maybe that's where I'm, what I'm trying to say. It's mm-hmm. not about intellectually being intellectually stimulated, even though it is incredibly stimulating. It's not about that experience. It's about something deeper and something more, not grand, but more holistic, holistic. Yes. Thank you. That's perfect. It, it's more, it's impacting me in more ways than just lighting my brain, you know, uh-huh. You see the but, MRI scan and your neurons are going berserk. Uh-huh. Uh, it's not about that. Even though I know that's part of the experience, it's something deeper. And I don't have that um, same reaction with other composers that I, you know, other composers that I might philosophically or, or emotionally say I love more, identify a yeah. deeper love for. I don't know. It's just very I, so. No, so to answer your question, no, I did not. I did not prepare tremendously. I, I kind of wanted to have bullet points to talk about this piece uh, and talk about this idea or this moment. Or I listened to um, well-tempered clavier a number of times, and there I had a number of observations that I love. That it's almost like uh, he gives you this really great meat, this just amazing meal of a fugue, and then. Why am I forgetting? What's what follows the fugue? Well, it's preludes and fugues. Yes, yes, yes. Sorry. Yeah. 
So the prelude is like it's great. It's it's nice. It's there. It's it's uh, interesting. And then you get into this just amazing, delicious food. And then he gives you a break. He doesn't keep you in that space. It's like, I'm going to give you this. I'm going to give you a bunch. You're going to have to digest it. You're going to have to, you know, stay up, stay up to speed. But I'm going to give you that break. And then you get to the next prelude and it's like, okay, I can, I can absorb that. Oh, this is nice. I like this. And it, it's just, it's mind boggling that that experience can be had from those pieces. And I wanted to talk about this fugue versus that one. And then I thought, yeah, that's, I don't, don't know. I don't know if that's the point of the music. I don't know if that's what the, I don't know that that betters the experience to dive in at that level with his music, where maybe if we were talking about Beethoven seven versus Beethoven eight, it might be worthwhile because it's a, the medium had changed, I think, and that form, maybe that form kind of encourages that type of discussion where the structure of each movement in a symphony gives you those moments to compare and contrast. And maybe that's what the whole idea is, is, is that it is very much built on compare and contrast. So I didn't have like a, a laundry list of let's talk about this piece and let's talk about uh-huh. that one and it just was this experience and I didn't know would there be interesting qualities or interesting aspects to a conversation that were just about not the ethereal, but the, the less tangible aspects of the experience of listening to Bach, of being immersed in Bach and what does that bring and what does that result in? When you were listening to the well-tempered clavier, what instrument were you listening to? I think it was piano. I think okay. it was, uh, I listened to. Oh, it, I don't, uh, the only reason I asked was because in my own little modest preparation for this, I was thinking about questions and kind of, you know, why, why Bach? Why is Bach still, still so important looming in, in all of our lives? But then I, and one of the things I came up with was just, you know, I think I've used this word earlier, resiliency that you can, you know, you can play it in a youth orchestra. You can play it at any time since, well, in, since we, we have recordings. We have recordings of, you know, Joseph Joachim playing Bach. Jo- Joachim, who essentially revived the Beethoven Violin Concerto. He was the one that put it on the map. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we, so we essentially have over 100 years of recorded Bach. And in, in thinking about the resiliency It occurred to me, you know, Bach's favorite instrument was the pedal clavichord. That was his instrument. He loved it. And is it possible when we throw this up on on the web, if we can put some clips of things people can like, like, uh, like YouTube clips? Because I'd realized I'd never, I'd, I'd never heard Bach played on the clavichord. It's like I love Bach, and I've never heard Bach, you know. On his favorite instrument, so I I went to YouTube. Thank you, YouTube. And I I was thinking it'd be really cool if we could find like one piece of music and have it played on a clavichord, a harpsichord, a piano, maybe even like a period piano, a, a new piano, and an organ. Just because those would be the four kind of uh, aesthetic choices or, or instrumental choices Bach would have would have. Well, he wouldn't have had a modern piano, but he would have had the other four choices. And each instrument has its own strengths and weaknesses and makes you make certain choices because of those. Last night, I was thinking, you know, we have well over 100 years of recorded piano. So we, you know, at that point, something in our relationship with the piano changed. And we have almost a hundred years of recorded harpsichord, not, not box harpsichord, but, you know, I think Landowski was recording in the late twenties and early thirties. So it's, it's getting, getting to that point where, you know, you can make something for mass consumption and people get it in their heads that this is what a harpsichord sounds like. If they've never heard a harpsichord, it's like, okay, you know, people in 
Paris and in London and New York will all have access to Landowska playing playing Bach on the harpsichord or Couperin or what have you. And so listening to people play the clavichord, you have not heard more radically different approaches to music. And and I, I, I almost Googled it, but I fell asleep. Like, when was the first recording of a clavichord made? And and were they ever really popular? Because I, I, I heard three specific players. There was a, a Dutch player who I liked very much. There was a, a German player who's also a fine pianist. And then there was some guy I'd never heard of. And, and he was playing the uh, the opening of the Goldberg Variations. And it was just the most wildly free, improvised, barely any sense of steady pulse. I mean, it, it, and it's like, wow. And, and I wonder if there's a connection between that and the fact that, you know, when I grew up, I heard lots of harpsichord recordings. I, nobody ever said, wow, you've got to get this recording of Bach on the clavichord. Uh, I wonder why it, that is. It's kind of a weird sounding instrument. Is I it? mean... I can't it's, say that I've heard a recording of it. Well, we're going to I'll I'll pick some out and we'll we'll put it up on this on this uh yeah, conversation. The, yes. Part of the idea here is the things that we talk about we provide links so that people if they want to dive in to some of the aspects that they can. Oh. Cool. So um uh-oh, I lost my train. It'll come back. Um uh, it was just clavichord listening to clavichord and and how that's different and how that uh you heard harpsichord recordings as a kid, but you never had. Oh, okay. I think one reason that people don't gravitate towards the clavichord is that it's a really, really quiet instrument. I, I mean, the, 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 it's a very simple mechanism where it's essentially like a, like a, a seesaw. It's, it's a key on a fulcrum mm-hmm. and it doesn't have an escape action like, like a piano where the hammer hits the string and comes back and lets the string resonate. It literally, it's a tangent, which means it's, it hits it and it stays on the string. Uh, and because of that, you can actually affect this really kind of sweet, mysterious little vibrato. It's, it's the only keyboard instrument that you can make a vibrato with. Oh, I see. Because they, once you depress the key, it stays on it. So if you were to move the key while it's depressed on the string or contacting the string, you can affect the string. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, I can't wait to share these with you because you have not heard more divergent ideas of, not even Bach, just how to make music. And apparently, according to this Dutch fellow who, uh, I can't remember his name, but I've heard this from other people that, that the clavichord was really a popular instrument even through the beginning of, the, you know, like the early 1800s, which is kind of... A, and somebody told me that Beethoven owned a clavichord, which is really a weird thing to think about. You know, the man that wrote these, you know, groundbreaking, piano-breaking, dynamic-breaking symphonies... Uh, Played this was, quiet, subtle, delicate yeah. instrument that had sweetness and you could have vibrato. Yeah. It's, it's a weird thing to wrap your brain around. We'll have to find. I'll have to find a link. Did, did oh, I'll, I'll, did he write stuff for it? Uh, I mean, that's the great thing about the internet, uh, and that's a, another. Not to say I prepared for this because I really didn't, but in kind of chewing around ideas, I just like went to Google and I would put Bach on you know Beethoven on Bach or Debussy on Bach, and I mean everybody had an opinion, and most of them were deeply laudatory. I forgot what Beethoven said, but it, it was it, he kind of played with the idea that Bach means stream, and you know this stream that we all this great stream of music we find our way back to. Boy, did I paraphrase that badly? You, you can you can include that in, in the in the web thing just to show that I'm deeply flawed and fallible. <laughs> if they haven't figured that out by now, well, they'll listen to what you said, and then we'll provide a link to what. He said. Cool. Better yet. Okay. Do you get to play Bach on your double reads? Oh, my God. I, I'm so glad you asked. Uh, this is one of my favorite factoids. When Bach was writing for the oboe, it was 
a newer instrument than when the great jazz saxophonists in the early part of the 20th century were playing the saxophone. Wow. You know, the saxophone was invented in the 1840s. And they weren't writing for another 60 to 80 years for it, right? Yeah. I mean, it was like in military bands and stuff, but like the, it probably wasn't until, I guess, like New Orleans, probably in the teens or yeah. maybe earlier, people played saxophones. But, you know, and then by the time we got to, you know, Duke Ellington, that was, you know, just about 80, 100 years after it. Yeah. Uh, whereas the oboe was invented in 1680, and uh, Bach was writing for the oboe probably by. I'm going to make it up, 1705, something like that. And interestingly, a friend of mine tells me that, uh, you know, when the oboe, there are different ranged instruments. There's uh, the oboe itself, and then there's an instrument that's fingered the same way. That's a minor third lower that Bach wrote for, called an oboe de moor. Uh, there, then there's a, an oboe de caccia, which is essentially the modern English horn which is a, a fifth lower. And a friend of mine told me that it really, when Bach would write for these instruments, it, it wasn't about the sound. It was simply about the range of the instrument and what he had, what, where his inspiration took him and what, you know, what key he was writing in. And, but it really had nothing to do with, you know, nowadays an oboe sounds. So, you know, nowadays our instruments are, you know, an oboe sounds really like an oboe and, and an English horn sounds quite different. And in Bach's day, I think they probably all sounded kind of the same. And it was just a kind of whatever range was what he was writing in is, is, is the instrument he would choose. Interesting. So less, um, less change, less, um, not timbre, but less, yeah. Uh, yeah, the, contrast, definitely less contrast and less real. I mean, I think less kind of aesthetic navel gazing, you know, yes, I'm sure there was, there was a difference in tone quality, but it's like, whatever, you know, we just, we want to get the cantata out this week and we're just going to write for the instrument that its range is. And then we have to write next week's cantata. And, uh, oh, have y'all, did I mention that John Elliott Gardner video on YouTube? Have we talked about that? No, we haven't. It is so cool. I, 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 I want to plug this. It's, um, I can't remember what it's called, but it's, it's about an hour and a half long and it's the famous brilliant conductor, John Elliott Gardner. And he does kind of a psychological, uh, a forensic exploration of, of box life and what he must've been like. Cause you know, as, as far as documentary evidence, we have hardly anything, you know, a few letters, obsequious letters that he wrote to royalty and you know we have a lot of manuscripts and we actually have uh, a copy of of somebody wrote a commentary on luther's translation of the bible and we actually have his copy of that book with its marginalia in it but as far as you know day-to-day life and you know we have precious little of that and and this documentary he like you know, takes whatever school records we have of Bach and what we know about, you know, Bach's, you know, when his relatives died and how this may or may not have impacted him. It's really a, a brilliant documentary. And I cannot, if you go to YouTube and just put John Elliott Gardner Bach, it'll be the first thing to come up and it's, it's well worth your while. We'll definitely put that in. That's, that's, uh, essential. Oh, and what actually reminded me of this is when I was talking about, you know, he wrote one cantata for every week of the church year and every festival day. And uh, I, the cantatas that have come down to us, it's, it's maybe about half of what he actually wrote. The rest of them have been lost. And apparently, I don't remember which cantata it is, but we surmised that he had, you know, a, like a little workshop of people. He would write the music and then you know, he'd give the score because they'd have to have parts for everybody to read off of every week. And, and we have this one part where one of his, his underlings was like transcribing. I can't remember one of the vocal parts and he was doing it in the wrong clef. And you can see where Bach took the paper and scratched through it and then wrote it out himself. Uh, which is, yeah, it's, it's, it's really neat to think of Bach as a living, breathing 
person. One of the things I did do was um, do some Wikipedia diving, and as my my lovely wife always says, you can't believe everything you read on Wikipedia. Yes, I know it's unless it's sourced, you can't really take it um, seriously, but it gives you something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I utilize it. But it's the Wikipedia article left me thinking that Bach was kind of a jerk. Very, kind of a, I don't think pompous, I would have wanted to have met him. Pompous prick. Yeah. And I, I don't know how I feel about that. If it were true, let's just say for the sake of argument that it was true. Uh, I, it's a little fascinating to think about writing the way he did and writing the volume that he did and not being really a cool guy. Not that he wasn't, but I think that they're... Well, we can't know. Right. We can't know whether he was or wasn't or if he was nice or unpleasant. But I think that this... I I need to watch this uh, Gardner video to see. I think it'd be really... I I have no doubt that Bach knew he had the goods. Oh, I had to. Coming up in in a family full of musicians that were professionals and were, you know, running the town group of musicians. And then you're the... You're, you you have to he had to have been the best of all of them you know he had to have known he was he was yeah all of that and then some and some more and somebody else's portion more and then and and to be able to live with that and it'd be really hard to like suffer idiots so you yeah. know yeah <laughs> and uh, i think i think in if you i think it's not you know, because there isn't a lot of documented evidence, it's hard. It's harder to make leaps and harder to make assumptions uh, because they they fall apart more quickly. But I think taking into account the volume that he wrote, and yes, he was paid for it, and yes, he was, you know, he was Kapellmeister, so he's he has to write every day. So you're going to have the output that he did. I think that he wrote at such a rate that you can't be bogged down by people that slow you down or aren't running at your pace. And so, yes, absolutely. You're, you've written something, you want it performed. Yes, absolutely. You're going to be irritated by someone who can't immediately transpose or immediately read it in the cleft that they need it to be in. And you're going to angrily scribble and mark through and notate you know, notate that part in the, in the right cleft. So would that be, would people observe a behavior like that were it to have happened as a person being a jerk? Sure. But yeah, I'm, I think I'm okay with that. Yeah. I'm, I'm fine with it. You know, does that mean that I would wanted to have hung out with him? Probably not. Uh, but would I have wanted to have heard him play? Yeah. Oh, would yeah. I have wanted, would I have wanted to have heard, been in the church when they did the St. Matthew Passion. You bet. Yes. Actually, any of them. Just to like see, get a chance to hear the physical quality of what was important. What's the story? He walked so many kilometers to. Oh, he was he as a kid. He wanted to Huda. Yeah, yeah. just and, and study with him. Yeah. yeah. Would I like as you were just saying? Would I want? Would I this? Would I have walked the the number of kilometers that he walked to hear books to Huda for me to hear him at the organ. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And you know, he was most noted as an improviser. So just to be able to like, would I, would I walk that many miles to hear Bill Evans? Yeah. Oh yes. Yes. You know, you know, to, to just knock it off of its, yes, it, it's deeply undergirded with structure and form, but it comes from this really alive, squishy human place and yeah i want to hear that that's what i want to hear when i hear hear bach absolutely
beautiful. Hey, I didn't miss any notes. Yay. That sounds wonderful. <laughs> Thank I, you.